And that's what I want to talk to you about today is how do we continue in, how do we continue in our faith journey? And I want to do it by posing a question to you. And um, you, you may maybe have not phrased the question quite this way, but how do I understand what God's will is for my life? You ever ask that question? What is, what is God's will for my life? How do I figure out what exactly God wants me to do at this junction? You know, I come to this intersection. There's multiple routes to go. How do I figure out what God's will is? Well, I have some encouragement for you this morning. The Bible is crystal clear on that. And it doesn't mean that it's going to answer every fancy that you have. But listen to one verse. And it's not in your notes. Jot it down the margin because I think this is one to hang on to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Listen to what it says, and let's see if it answers the question for us a little bit. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, it goes on specifically that you abstain from sexual immorality. But listen to that first part of the verse. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So let's throw out a couple variables here, okay? you've gotten a bonus at the end of the year and you have been watching that bass boat for a long time and you want to know, is it the will of God for you to buy that new toy? Well, you know, there are some ways in which the purchase of that toy is not just a financial commitment. It's, It's entirely possible that the purchase of that toy now makes us not see you ever on Sunday morning. Because you're at Lakeside, you know, uh, you're, you're at Bass Creek Baptist Church, you know, you're at, you're at Good Fishing Baptist Church, and you find a way that you're just not fellowshipping with God's people. Uh, you know, you, you've um, you called into the office with your boss, and it's Friday afternoon, and you're going, what in the world can this be? I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm nervous, and everything's going well. Well, you've just been promoted. You know, it's going to be a significant pay increase but it's going to require you and your family to move. Perhaps to a place where it's very difficult for you to find fellowship and uh, opportunities for your family to grow spiritually. So most of us go, greater pay, greater authority, done. We never really stop to consider that even good things can be an impediment to your sanctification. Now as we talk about this and talk about the role that the Holy Spirit plays, after all, He is called the Holy Spirit. He is concerned about holiness. And as we talk about the process of sanctification um, in the Spirit's life, statistically this is the most significant ministry that the Holy Spirit is involved in. We've talked about His role in inspiring the Scriptures and helping us, uh, helping the Word to, um, uh, the proclamation of the Word through testimony and through preaching. We talked about how the Holy Spirit identifies us, seals us, and pledges us to God. But as we look at all of the words in the New Testament that talk about the Holy Spirit's role, 233 words, Nearly 100 of them deal with the Holy Spirit's sanctifying process in the life of the believer. So almost half of the words related to the Holy Spirit's work deal with this whole idea of us growing to be more holy. So if 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is true, this is the will of God, your sanctification. How does it happen? How does the Holy Spirit make you more holy? And isn't that a million-dollar question? Well, there are two things. Um, We have a two-point sermon today. Uh, which I said earlier is a lot better than a no-point sermon. And um, these two points really deal with two poles of our understanding related to sanctification. And the challenge is we have to hold on to both of them. If we want to be biblical, we have to hold on to both of them. But when we hear them, we'll wonder how exactly do they fit together? How, how do these fit together? 
you've got to listen to the whole thing to figure out how it all pieces together. The very first thing is this. When we talk about the Holy Spirit's role in sanctifying us, we must acknowledge, big word here, we must acknowledge positional sanctification. That is, we are sanctified immediately upon placing our faith in Christ. We are given a new position. We are changed. And so here's, here's the thing, and this might be perhaps a little bit controversial for people who have been Christians for a long time. We tend to think the more good works we do, the more kind of brownie points that we get with God. You know, I've been a Christian for 20 years. You've only been a Christian for a year. Well, maybe someday you'll grow up and be like me. You know, we know that God wants growth in godliness. But here's the point. If we trust God today and die tomorrow, we're saved even though we have not taken any steps in progress in our sanctification. Here's what is so offensive about God's free offer of grace. The convicted death row inmate can be forgiven at the last hour, as well as the person who's grown up in the church. I mean, that is an incredible truth. But isn't everything kind of in our human nature, like you should get what you deserve? Uh, That's terrible, because if we all got what we deserved, we would all go to hell. That is what we deserve. Here's my point. There are special circumstances in which a person can be saved without pursuing sanctification. But it's not y'all. Y'all are alive. You're not that death row inmate. There are situations where God will overwhelmingly just shed his grace upon someone who has never really taken... The thief on the cross had no opportunity to obey. He was saved. And so when we talk about positional sanctification... We're talking about Jesus changing our position. So listen to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 11. Uh, and, and we're jumping into the middle of the conversation here. In, in chapter 6, verse 11, everything that comes before it is a whole big long list of vices. A whole long list of vices. And he says this. It sounds like gossip in the church. And some of you used to be like this. So adulterers, murderers, thieves, um, whatever, embezzlers, Some of them, that's what you were, were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What he's saying is that you used to be one thing and now you're something else. Isn't that an amazing thing? I have banged my head on my desk this week trying to think through how do we picture this. And it's not, it's not a perfect illustration. No illustration ever is. But I thought about this. January 20th, 2017. You have a person who on January 19th was a normal private citizen. And after the events of a swearing-in and inaugural ceremony, that person is no longer a private citizen of the United States. They are the President of the United States of America. They have been given a new position. That's what the Bible says happens to us. There we were one thing, we're now something else. And by placing our faith in Christ, God has given us a new name, a new position, and we are no longer rightful objects of wrath. Instead, we're His kids. He has given us the right to be called the children of God. And we are no longer 
of the world. We're in the world. We're not of the world. We are what Paul says 60, 70 times in his epistles. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. That's a, that's a, a weird way to think about it. You, like, we are in Christ. It's hard for me to think of my body being in another body, but I am now viewed by God the same way he views his son because I'm in Christ. So anything that is true of Christ is true of me. I love the way 1 Corinthians 6.11 talks about this because it's all past tense. It says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. When did this happen? It happened at the cross. It happened at the cross. Jesus perfectly obeyed God and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And for you and me, by humbly placing our faith in his work and not our work, his good deed, his obedience, and not my obedience, not my good deeds, by, by placing my faith in him, we are transferred from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven. So we were yesterday a sinner. Now we're a saint. Once we were guilty, now we're innocent. And we know that we're not innocent. We know that by identifying with Jesus, he has taken our sin and he has given us our righteousness. And so God now, instead of seeing our sin, sees only the perfect obedience of Jesus as if it applied to our account. He doesn't see my shortcomings. He doesn't see my short fuse. He doesn't see my foibles. He sees Jesus' perfect obedience and he looks at me as if I have perfectly obeyed. Jesus achieves our sanctification through his death and resurrection. A word that we use for that is we are justified uh, legally before God where our sins are no longer accounted for us. It is a positional sanctification happens immediately. Romans chapter 8 declares this with great passion. We're not going to read through the whole, whole chapter, but verses 2 through 17 are extraordinarily pertinent to this topic. So I want you to hear how it describes exactly what's going on here. In I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, verses 2 through 5, it says this, uh, The Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. God condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. This is great news. This is the spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death because Jesus in the flesh met all the law's demands that were placed upon us, but we were powerless to obey. There was no way we were going to do this. Romans chapter 6, verse 11, <clears throat> says in a very um, pointed way what happens when Jesus came and met the law's demands and offers us justification, positional sanctification. Romans 6, 11 says, So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. This is not sin, T-O-O, to Sin, in, to consider you as dead in order to sin. Dead to sin. It doesn't hold its attraction to you anymore. In Christ, you should consider yourself dead to sin. Now, the problem is, Romans, uh, Romans chapter 8 continues on and talks about this great battle that I don't know that we're always aware of, but it, it, it posits this battle between the spirit and what we call the flesh. And because Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death, the flesh loses, and it's a sore loser. It wants all the taxpayers in its kingdom that it can get, and it is not going to let you go without a fight. 
And so the, the, the flesh puts itself in every way dead set against the spirit. It is not going to give you up. It is hostile. It is unsubmissive. And it is going to try to pull you back into its kingdom. But in verses 9 through 17, the scriptures talk about how Jesus works in our life through his spirit. Listen to verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, since the spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He says very simply, you have a resource that the world knows not of. It's the spirit. And if you don't have the spirit, you don't belong to Christ. It makes it that simple. He continues on in verses 12 through 13 with a so then, so then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We have the Spirit. And whereas the flesh only gives uh, death and pain, the Spirit gives life and peace. And he says, because we have the Spirit, we're no longer obligated to live according to the flesh. We don't have to fall back into a spirit of slavery. We're not sla- we don't have a slave master named sin or Satan. We, instead of having a slave master, have a father. And his spirit testifies with our spirit that we belong to God. A good way to summarize this is that Jesus died for sins so that we could die to sin. And I think if we we only hold on to one of those words, four or two, we get the gospel wrong. Jesus died for sin, not period, dot, 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 so that we can die to sin. Jesus died for sin so we could die to sin. The truth is this. We are saved for sanctification. <clears throat> Otherwise, we talked about this last week, God would just beam you up whenever you believe. It would be Star Trek. You're gone, but he has a desire for you to be his representative, to be his image, to be his ambassador here. And so your sanctification is part and parcel of salvation. You're not saved by your sanctification, but it's not an optional add-on. That big old truck you're, you want to buy for mudding, you know, you can get it with the standard lights or you can put the big old honking lights on the top of it. It's optional. Sanctification is not that way. Sanctification comes with every package of salvation that is sold. You can't do away with it. To do away with it changes the gospel because the God who saves us changes us. And so it is absolutely essential for us to understand the importance of uh, being sanctified. Listen to how the Bible describes it. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we must always thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord. Listen. Because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Two throughs. Through sanctification, through belief in the truth. Now don't take this verse out of context and assume that what is being communicated here by Paul is that you're actually saved by your sanctification. That's not true. The truth is, when people see your good works, do they know why you do what you do? No. And so it's saying, pursue good works. And you know, uh, it's interesting because um, 
Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons believe they are saved by good works. That's why they actually go out and share. You're not saved by your good works, which is why you don't care. I'm saved. doesn't matter if I tell anybody. I think the point that he's making is that we should desire to look like God so much that it looks like our salvation is dependent upon our sanctification. It doesn't. We're saved through truth. But people don't know why you do what you do until you testify to the grace of God in Christ. Saying, be passionate about looking like Jesus. And he can say, we are saved through sanctification and through belief. Because ultimately, anyone who believes really should be pursuing a sanctified lifestyle. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says this, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and you have been set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been set apart for obedience. I don't know that it gets any simpler than this. So friend, listen. You may be, you may be a disobedient Christian this morning. That's entirely possible. There is a category of disobedient Christian. Just know you are completely out of God's will. And so to expect for your prayers to be heard, to expect for his blessing, it's not a conditional thing. God will bless you. I mean, you're breathing right now. You're healthy right now. That's a blessing. But to expect that God is going to look favorably upon your condition when you're choosing to rebel against him is not right. The Bible says we have been set apart for obedience, not just for belief. The way that we actually make our belief tangible is by our obedience. It's not just something that we believe. Well, here's the second point. If the first point is that we are positionally sanctified, we are immediately saved when we place our faith in Christ, here's the second truth that kind of sounds way out there. It sounds contrary to what we just established. And the second point is this. We must recognize that our sanctification is also progressive. It happens gradually over time. I don't know if you got saved as an adult. Just play along here for a second. It's not like you got saved and you go home and your wife is like, I don't even recognize you anymore. Did you dye your hair? Something's different about you. It's not like all the change happens all at once. Now, the truth is, if you've been saved for any period of time, let's just say you've, you've been a believer for 10 years. Can we agree that you should not look now like you did then? If you look the same, there's a problem. I think sometimes what we do is we think that the Holy Spirit is really necessary in our life to get us out of the bad situation that we found ourselves in. And then it's up to us to just kind of live the Christian life on our own. Yeah, we need the Spirit to save us. And that's not true. The truth is we don't just need the Holy Spirit to start out with. We don't just start out with the Spirit. We continue on in the Spirit. Paul addresses this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. He says to the Galatians, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? Guys, listen. One of the most frustrating and just dumb ways to live is to try to live the Christian life without the Spirit. It's not possible. There's no power. There's no energy. There's no joy. And so the point is that God has given you all of the resources. God has given you the commands. Do this, do this, do this, look like this, act like this, talk like this. But it's not all up to you. He will send his spirit to work in you. He'll work in you through friends that are around you, through circumstances that you face. You don't just need the spirit to start. You need the spirit 
to finish faithfully. Now, here's the thing that is the challenge. When we talk about the difference between positional sanctification and progressive sanctification, we receive positional sanctification. There is nothing that you do. Jesus has done it all. The only thing that you contribute to positional sanctification is your sin. You receive his righteousness. You receive faith. You receive grace. But you do actively contribute to progressive sanctification. You receive positional. You contribute to progressive. Guys, listen, if you don't contribute, then there's no sense for there ever to be a command in Scripture. That's what the commands are for. So listen, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Therefore, dear brothers, since we have such promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and the spirit, completing our sanctification in the fear of God. There's work for us to do. There are hard edges that still need to be sanded off for us to look like Jesus. He says, listen, yes, it's God. Yes, it's the Spirit. But He's got to work in us. And there are times we've got to roll up our sleeves and we've got to issue out some blood, sweat, and tears to pursue sanctification. Let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and the Spirit, completing our sanctification in the fear of God. To talk about this um, progressive nature of sanctification it's challenging to think of um, an analogy here as well. No analogy works perfect. Um, Inauguration day for the president seemed to talk about the positional transfer. I think we're on the same page. When we talk about the progressive um, nature of sanctification, the only analogy, Reed and I talked about this, we're trying to think through what are the best ways. No, we can't use that one because too many negative things associated with it. Can't use this. What we came up with was um, home ownership. You either live at home, which means you're basically homeless, you're a freeloader, um, or you rent, or you own a home, okay? So whenever you fill out a loan, credit card application, whatever, they will ask you, are you a renter, or do you own your home? So here's, here's not a trick question. When you sign that mortgage, do you own your home? Yes, you do. I mean, when you fill out the credit card application, don't you mark homeowner? You're not renting, right? You own the home. You have been declared to be the owner of that home. But if you sell it tomorrow, how much money are you going to get? Not a dime. Not anything. You might lose money in the whole proposition. But here's what happens. You sign the paper. You are declared the homeowner. And then every payment that you make, guess what happens? You become a little bit and a little bit more the actual owner of that home. Something has been declared about you that we all know isn't true. You do not own that home, but you have, been, uh, you have been benefited with the title of the homeowner. And with every faithful payment you make, you become more and more the owner of that home until that very last mortgage payment. You pay it off, and if you sell that home, you get every penny of that, what, what goes for that sale. That's the same thing that happens with this relationship between Positional sanctification, it's declared, but it's progressive. It's not really yours until it's all paid off. Here's the point. Jesus has declared you to be holy the minute you put your faith in him. How many of you would use that as an adjective to describe your life this morning? Well, you know, here's what I, here's what I do for a living. I work for this company. Um, I like long walks on the beach. I'm more of a dog person than a cat person. Oh, no, yeah, I'm holy. Let me change the question around a little bit. Do you look more holy than you did 10 years ago? 
See, when we ask in the short term, it's really hard for us to see our own growth. But on New Year's, when you make your resolutions and you think through things that God has worked out in your life, or when you, you look at where you're at now to where you were 10 years ago, you see growth and holiness. That's a good thing. That's declared holiness, becoming actual holiness, as God trains you by His Spirit. So the Bible's full of commands that indicate we are to be actively participating in our sanctification. Uh, perhaps one of the most famous ones, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Spirit's command. A couple things you don't know about this command. It is present tense. It doesn't say you were filled or you need to be filled in the future. It says, be filled. Right now, be filled. Which, if you can hear, that's a command for right now. Here's, here's the thing that's amazing. When we talk about the ministry of the Spirit, there, will be, there are people, millions of people, well, at least on the eastern seaboard, there are millions of people in church right now. And some people will walk out of a church building only having heard the voice of a man. Other people will walk out having heard the voice of God because they came to church and they sought to be filled with the Spirit. It changes the way you listen. It changes the way I preach when I ask for God to fill me as opposed to just getting up and doing what I'm supposed to do every week. So he says, don't be, don't, don't, don't be drunk with wine. Be filled. It's present tense. It's plural. It's not singular. It's plural. And it's passive. Allow yourself to be filled. So the South Carolina translation of this is all y'all, allow y'all to be filled. It's present it's plural, and it's passive. So why, why plural? Because Henry Grantham's filling with the Spirit encourages mine. Because John Hollis is being filled with the Spirit. On the mornings that I wake up and don't want to be filled with the Spirit, it helps me. Um, Donovan Steiner's filling with the Spirit encourages me to have more zeal to desire that same thing. The Bible says we're supposed to Love and encourage to stir up love and good deeds among each other. And that's why it's plural. So one of the keys to progress and holiness is being filled with the Spirit. Now, you know why it's a, a present active command? Because y'all leak. Bad. I mean, like, bad leaky. And so, like, you might get filled up today. Guess what? When you wake up tomorrow, even though you haven't done anything, you need to be filled again. It, it all done leaked out over the night. I don't know what, what, all, what, what you're eating, what you're drinking, I don't know what your habits are, you leak. I mean, like, you cannot retain enough spirit for tomorrow. You, you're not going to get filled up enough to make it through the week. You need to be filled continually. So continuing our home, home ownership analogy, okay? Changing the direction of it a little bit. When we talk about being filled, this idea of filling has the idea of complete saturation. So how do you know if a sponge is completely saturated? Don't take any more water. So like you take that, you take that sponge, and I don't care how gentle you are, you rest your finger on that sponge, and what happens? Water starts to ooze out of it because it is completely full. Um, I used to love with my mom and dad. We 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 ate dinner most of the nights together, and I, it was my job to pour drinks. And I don't know, I don't know if you know this. Liquid has this fascinating property of cohesion, so you can, um, you know, I, some of you are glass half empty guys, some of you are glass half full guys. I'm an overflowingly full guy. So you can, <laughs> you can get a glass and you can pour it up to the rim and then you can pour a little more. And it kind of bubbles over the top 
you got to be real careful because you don't want it to actually spill, but you can spill it. So it kind of bubbles over the top just a little bit so that the minute your mom and dad grabs it, they spill it all over the place. It's great. Um, I used to love doing that because when it's full, every little jostle is going to make it spill. It's saturated. It is completely full. So thinking about the analogy of homeownership, we're not talking about a mortgage. We're talking about a blueprint. And your life is a blueprint. There's different sections. There's different components of your life. You've got a dining room. You've got a living room. You've got a kitchen. You've got a bathroom. You've got a garage. got a shop. got whatever. got a basement. <clears throat> and when, it, when the Bible says that God wants to fill us with his spirit, he wants us to be filled with spirit, that means complete saturation. The temptation that we have is we'll, we'll give him our study and we'll give him our kitchen and we'll give him our living room. We'll give him our dining room. Eh, we'll give him the bedroom. I just got one closet, God, that I want to hold on to. That's where all my skeletons are. That's where all the stuff that you really don't want to see is. So just please, let me give you everything. Just let me keep one closet. Is that being filled? No. As long as you hold on to one thing, you are not being filled. You're filled as much as you're willing to allow him to fill you. But you're not filled. So one of the things that the Spirit does is he very gently pries your finger off of whatever it is that you're holding to that you think is so important. And eventually you won't think it's so important anymore. And as an act of worship, you will turn over the keys to that closet and say, this is probably going to hurt. But I know that giving it to you is the best thing that I can do. All the stuff that's messed up in my life is in that closet. All, all the dumb decisions I make are in that closet. Like, I have proven I can't even manage that closet, let alone the rest of the house well. Why don't I give you ownership of it and allow you to fill everything? You see, there's several words that the Bible use when we, uses when we talk about sanctification. The first is be filled. It's a command, it's present, it's plural, it's important. I think we have to understand that, being, that, that filling by the Spirit is what enables what the Bible calls walking in the Spirit. Okay? If you are a container, a vessel, and you are empty, what's your walking going to be? Empty in your own power. Filling is a prerequisite to faithful walking. And I think sometimes we just use all this analogy, yeah, filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. No, no, no. They work together. So filling by the Spirit is a prerequisite for faithful walking in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 talks about this all over the place. It's a great passage just going to read a couple verses here to you. Galatians 5, verse 16 and 17 says this, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. How do you battle the flesh? Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. They are opposed to each other. Walking by the Spirit is the key to not carrying out the desires of the flesh. But then in Galatians 5, 22 through 25, just a few verses later, he, he picks up in the middle of verse 21, he says, I told you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice all these vices will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. 
And we must not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. The point that he's making is this, is that walking in the Spirit isn't just essential for our combat against the flesh. It is absolutely essential for our cultivation of the fruit. Walking by the Spirit, which is predicated on filling of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit is essential for our combat. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. But to think that you can win the battle and then produce your own fruit? No, 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 no. The Spirit produces spiritual fruit. What do you produce? I don't know, but it ain't spiritual fruit. The Spirit alone produces spiritual fruit. So filling by the Spirit leads to walking in the Spirit, which blossoms into fruit-bearing. So friends, there's a great word for you this morning, okay? If you have trusted in Christ, you are saved and you are sanctified. God looks at you and no longer sees your sin. Even though you're still in the battle with it and you think you're losing, Jesus says you've already won because you've placed your faith in Christ. That's great. Period. End of the sentence. Awesome. However, understand that one of the reasons he gives you the Spirit is to help you be in the battle against all the junk that you face all the time and to, to, to call you to look higher than the junk right here to look at what God wants. That's what he says. I've got all these commands. I've got all these things. The Spirit will help you fight the flesh. The Spirit will help you. Um, it will fill you so that you can be motivated to do the right things like walking and fruit bearing. Like to try to walk or to try to bear fruit without having the Spirit, it's insane. Here's the deal. No matter what the most difficult command is that God has given you, He has already promised you that He's giving you everything that you need to do what He's told you to do. Like, how incredible is that? Kids, have you ever gotten a chore that your parents have given you and, like, you're out of cleaning supplies? I did that to my kids. They said, hey, go clean the bathroom. We got no bathroom cleaning stuff. I don't care. Clean the bathroom. <laughs> like, your parents will do that. They will tell you to do something that it's physically impossible. God will never do that to you. He will always give you the resources to do what he has called you to do. I close with this verse, Hebrews 12, 14. The writer to the Hebrews says this, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The Bible is calling us to trust in Christ and to pursue the sanctification that Jesus himself purchased for us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for loving us, to save us, to sanctify us. Father, we, um, there are some of us here, man, that all we want to do is just get about to the good works. We want to be busy. We want to be busy. Let's get it done. And Father, we have to understand that without understanding our salvation in Christ and the process of looking like you, then our service is empty if we're not consciously trying to look like you and glorify you. Our good deeds may just be a form of pagan idolatry or a way of trying to make ourselves look good. So, Father, we know you want us saved and you want us sanctified and you want us serving, but the order and the maturity with which we deal with those things is very important. Thank you for loving us enough to send your son to die on, on the cross for us and to send us your spirit so that we might experience a joy and a peace and a victory in the midst of a very difficult world. Uh, because you love us enough that you're not going to command us to do something that you've not empowered us to do. And I pray today that you will help us to rejoice in our hearts 
about our positional sanctification in Christ and that you will help us to work for your glory in our progressive sanctification as you make us more like Jesus. In whose name we pray.